Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I, I want to kind of dive right in today um, because we're going to look at an encounter uh, of two people. Two people and their experience with Jesus. Two people who seemed to be at, and frankly were, in the culture of the day, at polar opposites with each other, but actually had something in common. Now, to get the full impact of this parable, and to understand it adequately as we continue in our series of Life Illustrated, looking at some of the parables that Jesus taught, where he placed a parable or a, or a story alongside the point he was trying to make so that uh, those who were listening could understand. And we're grateful too, aren't we, for these parables because uh, they take us to places. And honestly, uh, the idea is that you enter into it, that you sort of picture yourself there, that maybe you even identify with a person or persons uh, in the parable and, uh, and learn some lessons because of that identification. But in order to get the full impact uh, and understand this parable adequately, it's necessary to understand some social etiquette that is involved behind the story. It has a clear bearing on the passage that we're looking at. So what I want to do in sort of honor of the fact that I'm already seeing back to school uh, ads on the TV, what I thought we could do is maybe look a little bit at the etiquette of our day and then we'll kind of work our way back to the first century. And I thought, what better way to do that in preparation for going back to school in a month than to have a little etiquette awareness test. And you're all my pupils. Yes. We're going to run through a few questions and see how well versed you are in the social graces. Uh, so I'm going to put up a bunch of questions on, the, on the, our question and then a bunch of multiple choice answers. And I'm going to ask you for which one you think is the appropriate uh, social etiquette answer. So first question, when should one start eating the main course at a formal dinner? A, after the hostess is served. B, after the hostess lifts her fork. C, after three or four people are served. Or a D, as soon as you're served with urgency and passion. Okay, show of hands on this one. How many have said A? A, Canadian one, A, B, C? Nobody likes my D, okay. Yeah, all right, okay. Actually, you may be surprised, but according to Emily Post, who is the guru when it comes to social etiquette in our day, she says that C is the correct answer, yeah. She says that very often the main course can cool down quickly. I can identify with that. I like my food hot. So it's very appropriate after three or four folks have been served to actually dig in. The hostess ought to go ahead and tell everybody to start. But if he or she doesn't, it's appropriate to start at the point when three or four have been served. Didn't know that, did you? Okay, question two. At a formal dinner, when should the hostess be served? A, never. <laughs> B, if it's her birthday. C, if, if the por first portion is hard to get out of the pan, or D, if she's at the end of a fast. You can tell which ones are mine, right? The D, yeah. Okay, uh, how many of you thought it was A? Okay, the actual correct answer here is C. Emily Post says, sometimes the first por portion is hard to extract. If it's hard to get out, then the hostess ought to take the mangled one, right? Otherwise, the hostess should be served last, not never, just last. Okay, question number three. 
What does one do when the main course is done and you're still hungry? A, say loudly, is that all there is? It's kind of the subtle approach. Number two, or B, point and yell, what's that? And then take food from your neighbor's plate while he's distracted. That's kind of the sneaky approach. Or C, ask for a second helping. Or D, call out for pizza. It's C, right? C is the appropriate answer. Don't even need to spend time on that one, really. Last question, and maybe the most important one. What's the correct response if one's cell phone goes off during the service at church? Ah, it's very, very important to get the correct etiquette on this one. So let's go through a few options on this one. A, quickly slide it forward and point disgustedly at the person in front of you. Some of you may have tried that. B, shout hallelujah until it stops ringing. Kind of a cover-up kind of thing you would do there. C, answer it saying you've ordered pizzas for everyone. Or D, give a large gift in the offering. <laughs> the correct answer there is C, right? Yeah. Although D is acceptable if you want to do that. See, every culture has its norms. Every culture has its rules. They govern how we deal with each other in social settings. How do we welcome people? How do we host people? How do we honor and value people? Or how do we ignore or, frankly, even insult them subtly? Understanding etiquette in the first century in the Middle East is crucial to the parable we're looking at today. Jesus had been invited to the home of a well-to-do religious leader, a Pharisee, for dinner. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. Almost all of them have already determined they don't like Jesus. They went around telling everybody else how to live, all the rules they had to follow, but are extremely notorious for their own hypocrisy. So it's quite likely this is not a friendly invitation, and we're going to see how this plays out. As we talked about last week, a visiting rabbi, Jesus in this case, would have been the guest of honor here. It was considered an act of merit. It was, it was something that uh, you were chosen and you were the elite if you were the one who was chosen to invite the visiting rabbi to your house for dinner. There's an honor attached to this, especially if they had been teaching that morning. So again, like our parable last week, we can make a broad assumption that Jesus had taught in the town earlier that day. There were certain rules that could be taken just for granted as a, as a matter of course at a dinner such as this. For instance, the customary greeting for an honored guest would have been a kiss. If the guest was a person of equal social rank, equal standing, then the host would greet the guest with a kiss on both cheeks. If it was a person of higher rank, for example, a child was greeting a parent, then the child would kiss the parent's hand as an act of respect. If a disciple was greeting a rabbi, it's the same thing. The disciple would kiss the rabbi's hand as a uh, welcome. To neglect this, this kiss of greeting, was the equivalent to simply ignoring, ignoring somebody and was unthinkable in that day, according to a Roman source known as Marthetus Stuartus. Think about it. I made it up. It would be like having a person come into your home and not even acknowledging their presence. Like you've invited them over and they've come in and you haven't even opened the door for them. You've completely ignored them. You haven't even said hi, not shake their hand, nothing. Another part of first century Middle East etiquette involved the washing of feet. The washing of feet was mandatory before meals. It was essential. Feet got dirty. They were considered kind of the filthiest part of your body. If a guest was high status, 
you would do it yourself. You would wash your guests' feet. If not, you might have your servant do it for them, or you might even just simply, depending on the layer that down of cast they go, you might simply give them water to wash their own feet. But even that would be somewhat offensive. You're sending a signal. You might also give your guests some olive oil to be anointed over the head with, usually kind of just an inexpensive olive oil. Uh, that was somewhat optional. Uh, it was done to refresh them for the life of me. I don't understand how that's refreshing. I want to have a shower after that. But nonetheless, that's what they did in those days. Uh, but here Jesus comes as a visiting rabbi. He's a VIP. And absolutely nothing happens. There's no kiss of greeting. No washing of feet. You must understand, these were not just subtle omissions, easily overlooked, nobody would have noticed. Not a minor faux pas. Jesus was ignored. Jesus was insulted. And it was quite deliberate. This was an intentional slap in the face. And the tension in that room as everyone saw what was going on would have been so thick you could have smelled it. This is an explosive setting here. And into this highly charged atmosphere, into this dinner engagement, comes a woman. Personally, I suspect, and probably and presumably uninvited. There's nothing to say she was. We don't know a whole lot about this woman. We don't know what her name is. We don't know how old she is. We don't know what she looks like. We don't know her backstory at all. All we know is what the Bible says about her. She's a woman who lived a sinful life in that town. We're not even told exactly what that sinful life is. It's obvious that it's a very public sin, as everyone seems to know what it is. And the particular word used for sinful here is most often used in the context of immoral behavior. The important thing is that this is how she is known. This is how she's identified. She's identified as the sinful woman. She's defined by her sinfulness. But she's about to be redefined by something that's going to happen. She doesn't say anything in the story. Perhaps you haven't noticed that before. Not a word. But she actually says a lot through her actions. We're not even told how she has heard about Jesus. Perhaps she even heard him earlier that day when he taught. Think about her coming into this place now. There's an enormous risk that she's taken by coming. She did not come here looking for a customer. She didn't come looking for work or for a handout. She came because she wanted to be with Jesus. Why did you come today? There are some lessons we can learn from this woman about how we are to come before the Lord, regardless of who we are and regardless of what kind of reputation we come with. There are some lessons we can learn from her about how we should come, how we can come to Jesus. First, she comes boldly. How did this woman get into a Pharisee's dining room in the first place? The Pharisee knows who she is, obviously. We know that from the text. He says, I know what kind of woman this is. Jesus doesn't know. That's strange. He should know. But I know she's got a reputation here in the town. Pharisees as religious leaders tended to be fairly wealthy. They would have a nice home. They would have had servants to help them out when they were doing entertaining such as this. He's putting on a dinner, a formal dinner. How did this woman make it past the servants if she has this kind of reputation? How did she make it past the judging eye of his dinner guests, maybe other Pharisees around the table? How did she get in there? There's one likelihood, and it has to do again with reputation but this time not hers, the reputation 
of the Pharisee. I've already mentioned that this was a feather in his cap to have the visiting rabbi dine at his place. It was something you actually wanted people to know. You wanted to, people to know you'd been selected. You wanted people to know you were the one who was having the rabbi over. It was something you wanted people to notice. This is another subtle clue into where the Pharisee's heart is at, and not beyond the notice of Jesus, I'm sure. See, here's how this is starting to play out. We've got two untouchable people. We've got the Pharisee who thinks he's untouchable because he's a religious leader and he's above everything and beyond reproach. And we've got the sinful woman who is untouchable because of her sin. That's the, that's the basic premise as we walk into this story. So, what you did if you were a Pharisee and you wanted to get noticed is that in those days, uh, you could make this kind of a public affair, this banquet. A prominent Pharisee would have more than one, more than one triclinium set up at his residence. Talk about that right away. In those days, when you went to dinner at somebody's house, you didn't get to sit in a nice big cushy armchair or straight back hard chair at the table. The table actually was hardly even a table. The table was basically on the ground, close to the ground. And they would have cushions or rugs to lie on in a configuration around the middle or where the food usually was. And that configuration was known as a triclinium, a triclinium, arranged in a U-shape with the honored spot being in the middle at the bottom of the U. So the honored spot would be at the top of that picture. One or more private intimate meals would be happening in a room such as this, but you could also go to your public triclinium, which you would often have just outside your courtyard. There, there uh, they would have uh, the ability for people to walk by and see. Their house would be built around this courtyard, and again, in a kind of U-shape, and it would be open at one end, and anybody could just walk by and watch and listen, though no one of lower standing could ever think of approaching the table, let alone reclining at the table, unless they were invited. You can imagine what it takes for this woman, then, to step out of the gathering crowd of passerbys and boldly walk into the courtyard. She has to gather up every ounce of courage that she has. She could be sent away. The law of the day said that you, she could actually have been stoned to death for defiling the home of a holy man. So she's taking an enormous risk. But she sees Jesus, and she is just undone by love and comes boldly in spite of that risk. I wonder what she was expecting in response. Was she expecting to be rejected? Was she just hoping that she could get close to Jesus for a moment? Was she hoping to find some kind of acceptance? She wasn't just paying homage to a holy man here. She needed hope. She was looking for hope. It makes me wonder about all of us, why we first came into a church in the first place. Why did we first come to Jesus? Why did we? Were we looking for something? What were we looking for? What were we hoping for when we first came? took those first steps into a church? What, are peop what about people that you meet in your life? What are they looking for? Jesus lives in your heart, and people are coming because they can see the Lord in you. What are they hoping for? Are they looking for forgiveness and a second chance? Or are they expecting maybe to be turned away like this woman was? Just like you think this Pharisee would have done to this woman. She came boldly. 
There's a second thing we can learn about her. She came humbly. Her bold move in coming to Jesus is not rejected. She makes it to Jesus' feet. Then there's this strange thing that kind of happens behind the scenes here. She has made this enormous, enormous effort just to get close to Jesus, to literally sit at his feet. But to her astonishment, she realizes that she's perhaps the only one who is there to really be with Jesus. She has seen how Simon treats Jesus. Remember now, it's likely that they're public, and, and uh, it's a public shaming that the Pharisees want to do here. So she's observed what's gone on so far. The Pharisee snubs him, insults him, and at first maybe her sense of justice says that someone should just march up to Sam, Simon and give him a slap for his indiscretion here. But her sense of mercy is much more focused on Jesus himself. She knows what it's like to be snubbed. She knows what it's like to be insulted. She knows what it's like to be treated with disrespect. She knows what it feels like to be ignored and slighted and looked down upon. She knows what it is to be shunned and belittled, and she immediately identifies with Jesus, who has been so obviously and uncomfortably slighted here, and she is moved. Now, imagine the drama here. Place yourself in this moment. Just picture this. Jesus is reclining at the table. Everybody would recline on their elbow, eat with their free hand, and their feet would be far away from the table. Their body would be stretched out away from the table, mostly usually on an angle, with their feet furthest away from their mouths. But your neighbor's feet were actually much closer to your mouth than your own feet were. You didn't know where your neighbor's feet had been. Think about all the dirt, the animal droppings, the garbage that their bare feet were exposed to in those days. You kept the feet as far away from your food as possible, but now your neighbor's feet is actually fairly close. Jesus is reclining like that, and this woman comes and stands at his feet, the position of the lowly. Everybody's watching. Everybody knows who she is. She's not invited, but she's made it this far. And like all the others, just to be near him is enough. And she's moved. She's moved to tears. A few at first, and then uncontrollably. She's undone before Jesus. Tears of shame and regret. Tears of loneliness and pain. Tears of relief that at last she has found someone who can change her destiny, who can transform, who can save her. She cries so much that she gets his feet wet with her tears. Have you ever had your heart touched by Jesus like this? This is so rich. The very feet that Simon refused to wash are now washed instead by her tears of love. She kneels down. Her, his feet are wet. She has nothing to dry them with except her hair. She reaches back and lets her hair down. And as if she hasn't already done enough in the way of faux pas, now she really, really breaches etiquette. Women were not allowed to let their hang, hair hang loose in public. It was, of course, very different than today, but then it was considered too sexually provocative for men to be able to handle a woman letting her hair down. Now talk about humility. She's on her knees at his feet. She's made this whole scene in front of everybody. She's come in humility to Jesus, and she's drying his feet with her hair. There's deep sorrow here. There is deep humility that's taking place. I don't want us to miss what's going on in this picture. This is a sinful person who is kissing his feet. She is touching God in the flesh. 
Have you ever turned that around? Turn that around for a second. This is God in the flesh allowing himself to be touched by a sinful person. Think about the implications of this. How profound this picture is that God in the flesh would allow himself to be touched by a sinful person. She came boldly, yet so humbly, and she came honestly. Then Luke says she had an alabaster jar of perfume, probably carried, as was the way in the day, in a flask around her neck. This would have been one of the tools of her trade and probably her most prized and expensive possession. What we need to understand is that everything about her life is represented in this jar. Her sin, her failure, her lifestyle, her work, her past, it's all represented in this gift that she brings to Jesus. This is honesty, folks. This is her confession. She's saying, in a sense, this is who I am. It's all in this alabaster jar. This is all that I've got right here. And she comes honestly, and she gets it right. God doesn't tell you to clean up your act before you can come and adore him. He doesn't say, come and worship me, and I'll clean up your act for you. God doesn't expect you to stop behaving or misbehaving in order to come before him. He invites you to come to him, and then he begins to change your character. And now we see that she comes extravagantly. We are told elsewhere in the New Testament that the perfume within this alabaster jar would have cost at least, at least a year's worth of income. So it may be her only possession beside the clothes that she wore. But now, now she just opens it and empties it all. She holds nothing back. She gives it all. She empties the whole thing out because she actually won't need it anymore. She's pouring out her whole life. She's unashamedly pouring this flask, which represents her life, on his feet. And she kisses them over and over. I'm wondering, when is the last time you had a moment like that with Jesus? When you're just undone, and you just open your hands, and you just give him everything. You just pour out all that you are before him. I wonder if you'd like to do that today. She's just pouring out extravagantly the symbol of who she has been, pouring it all out in an act of love and honor and worship to Jesus. The Bible tells us in Romans 12 that we offer ourselves to God as an act of worship, and then he transforms us into a new person. We don't confess and repent in order to somehow earn forgiveness. We confess and repent and change our ways because we've been forgiven. God initiates all of it. He invites us to come just like this woman did. He invites us to come and worship him boldly, humbly, honestly, extravagantly, to pour out our life in confession and then let him begin the transformation in our lives. We're going to see this happen in this woman's life. And I'm sure that there are many of you who could testify to this truth in your own life as well. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. Because God changed my life. I didn't have to do it myself. I just came and surrendered to him, and he began to change me. That's the transformation that God wants to do in each of us. This woman came looking to be accepted, looking for an opportunity to come, come clean, an opportunity to find forgiveness, an opportunity to be transformed and to start over. See, God isn't asking you to make promises that you cannot keep. He's asking you to receive a promise that only he keeps. You come to the Lord, you confess your sin, he forgives you, and the transformation begins. 
It's God who does the work in us. And then the Bible says this. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, talking about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. From that, we get the whole sinful woman parable. He's saying if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is, and he'd know what I know about her, and it's so not good. What kind of woman is she? The Pharisee only sees her as a sinner who deserves judgment. Jesus saw saw her as a woman who needs forgiveness. How do you look on people? With judgment? Or as someone you see who needs forgiveness? The funny thing is that we immediately discover that Jesus not only knows what kind of woman this is, he also knows what kind of man the Pharisee is. And Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. And the implication of that sense is, you're probably not going to like this. Simon had pronounced judgment on this woman. She's a sinner. He had pronounced judgment on Jesus. He's an incompetent prophet. And Simon had gotten it all wrong. So Jesus, in his grace, tells him this parable that this Pharisee might get it to. Two people owed money, he starts, to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 pieces of silver and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Notice in the story you've got one who owes 500, the other who owes 50. Neither of them can repay the debt. Neither one of them can afford to ever pay this off. Now in those days, people who allowed themselves to get into debt were looked down upon and the money lenders, people who would lend out money and charge interest, were even worse. Like they were the lowest of the lows. Both of the debtors owed money. Neither of them could pay it back. They both, both faced the same fate before the money lenders. That's what they have in common. Now here's the difference. One debt looked manageable. It carried the illusion of manageability. The other guy knew it was impossible, but in fact both of them were unable to pay. We have a, a sonar depth finder rig in our little fishing boat, boat, which tells us, among other things, how deep the water is underneath us, underneath the boat. There have been some places we've gone where the water has been well over 100 feet deep. And each time she can visibly see that on the monitor, Jennifer gets nervous, of course not me, Jennifer gets nervous as compared to when we're just over 10 feet of water. That's what we usually fish in, about 10 feet of water. But in reality, if we were to suddenly sink, like the time I forgot to put the plug in the bottom of the boat, If we were to suddenly sink, would it matter whether we were in 10 feet or 100 feet deep of water? No, can't touch the bottom, can't touch the bottom, can't touch the bottom, but there's a perception that swimming in 10 feet of water is so much better than swimming in 100. And it's that same way for these two debtors. One owes a lot, the other a tenth of that, but neither of them can pay it back. Jesus says for these characters, when it looked really dark, Guido the loan shark shows up and says, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. These debts you owe, forget about it. Forget about it. And both sides are forgiven. Now Jesus asked Simon the pivotal question, which one is going to have his world turned upside down? 
This is a very simple question. It's not difficult the way that Jesus has posed it. The answer is obvious to Simon, but Simon doesn't, is seeing where this is going, and Simon doesn't just want to go there. He's, you can sense there's some reluctance here. He says, he knows what's going on. He says, well, I suppose it's the big dead guy. And Jesus says, bingo, or Hebrew or Aramaic words to that effect. And now I wish I knew how to convey the drama of this moment because up until now, Jesus has been talking with Simon and everybody around the table. And this woman has been at his feet, more or less behind him. But now it says, and it just kind of jumps out of this whole passage, like, why now? Why here? Why this? Jesus turns towards the woman. But here's the thing. He's still talking to Simon. But now Jesus turns towards the woman. Simon and all the people at the table are now behind him. And he keeps talking to Simon, but he's now facing this woman. Her eyes are fixed on him and him, his eyes on her. She has boldly, humbly, honestly, and extravagantly come to Jesus. And now he's going to boldly, humbly, honestly, honestly and extravagantly love her in return. You have to picture her as these words are being spoken. Her eyes lock into Jesus' eyes, full of all kinds of emotion, probably still watery from her tears, embarrassment, shyness, and a sense of being totally unworthy, but mostly just radiant love emanating from her. And Jesus, her champion, her advocate, her friend, looks right at her and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Because of course, Simon hasn't really seen this woman. He saw an object of contempt, someone whose loose morals would offend him. But he did not see what Jesus saw. He never really saw this woman. Nobody around the table saw what Jesus saw. Jesus says, do you see this woman? And of course, they all try to look. This seems like an unnecessary question, doesn't it? Seems rather obvious. There's not that many there. Do you see this woman? Well, of course we see this woman. Everybody sees the woman. She's just made a big spectacle of herself. How could we miss her? But there's something really interesting going on in here in the imagery. Remember, everyone is reclining at the table. The Pharisee is at the center of the bottom of the U. Jesus is at one of the ends. We know that he would choose to sit there based on what we learned from the parable we looked at last week. Don't exalt yourself, right? So Jesus is down at the table and has turned on the elbow, turned his back now on the Pharisee to look at his feet where the woman is. Imagine she's at the bottom, bottom right of this painting. It's kind of a, you know, a fanciful painting. But imagine her at the bottom right, at the feet of the one who's at the bottom right. That's where she's placed herself at Jesus' feet. From the Pharisee's position now at the center of the U, he can't actually see the woman clearly anymore because Jesus is in the way. Jesus is in the way. He can really only see the back of Jesus. Jesus has now placed himself between the woman and her accuser. Do you get this? Does it start to give you some goosebumps? He has turned his back on the Pharisee. He's turned his face towards the sinner. He's turned his back on the accuser, and he's turned his face toward the accused. He's turned his back on self-righteous pride, and he's turned his face toward this humble woman in distress. And Jesus just keeps right on looking at her. He says, Simon, I came into your home and you didn't give me water for my feet. Even here, Jesus is being gracious to Simon. He doesn't say, Simon, you didn't wash my feet. 
He doesn't even imply that Simon should have been humble enough to wash them. He's going down to that low level, remember? You didn't even give me water enough to wash my own feet. Jesus simply says, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water to wash my own feet, but she, was, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus says, Simon, I came into your home, and you didn't kiss me. Again, he's being gracious. He didn't say, you didn't kiss my hand, which a disciple should have done or a Pharisee should have done to a rabbi. He says, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. He says, Simon, since I came in, you have not felt I was worth your notice. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has extravagantly poured all her expensive perfume on my feet. Then Jesus says these words, imagine being this woman with Jesus' eyes locked on you with all the other people behind him. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, back there, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Her heart just explodes. Do you remember when yours exploded? Her heart just explodes and she experiences newness of life and gratefulness and love like she did not think she was capable of because Jesus, the best, the wisest, the most loving person in the world, the most that she's ever known in front of all these religious leaders behind him, looking at her right in the eye and he says these words to this woman that we long to hear ourselves from the Lord. Therefore, this woman who wasted her whole life and did the most degrading kind of things that you people can imagine, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It's all gone. It's all over. Your faith has saved you. Go now in peace. Her greatest need has been met, and she knows she has been forgiven. Do you know how you can be forgiven? It's something to not just understand but to truly be experienced. Jesus says that's why she pours out everything she has. That's why her tears bathe my feet. That's why she wipes them with her hair. That's why she can't stop kissing me. Because anyone who opens their heart and becomes humble and fully honest before, heart, before God gets their heart healed and set free, and she is just filled to overflowing with love. But Simon, Jesus says, still looking at this woman, the one who is forgiven little, well, the one who is forgiven just a little, just a little, only a little, Simon, they love just a little. They love just a little. The woman who could not repay her debt and neither could the Pharisee, the Pharisee was counting on his own goodness. The woman is counting on God's mercy. When we understand the depths of our own sin, our own failure, when we understand how much we really owe to God, it changes the way we love him, doesn't it? It deepens our love for him. He who was forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. If my love of God is shallow, if my love for God is shallow, it means that I don't understand the depth of my sinfulness. That's what that means. It means I don't understand how much God really does love me. When I fully understand the weight and the depth and the debt of my own sin, it changes the way I see other people. Other people they, that I may have looked at and judged or thought that they were worse than I am. This woman's life is transformed. She, before Jesus, she's transformed. Jesus will never turn his back on someone who comes to him in this fashion. Perhaps that's you today. He will never turn his back on a penitent heart 
Wherever God finds a praying heart, God will be found to be there with a prayer-hearing ear. He knows your past. He knows your failures. He knows everything about you. He knows all that stuff. He will not reject you nor turn away from you when you come honestly before him in worship and in confession. He can be trusted to respond with forgiveness when you do. Notice in the story, Jesus never calls the woman a sinner. He didn't need to. She already knew. We already know. She didn't need a sermon. She just needed a second chance. That's all she was looking for. The Lord isn't going to point his finger and wag it in your face about all the horrible things you used to do. He comes and he says, just pour it all out. Just pour it all out on my feet. Let's get it over with and start over again. Just like this woman, just like the others who've come before him, they came to worship and God gives them a second chance and he allows them to start over. Jesus didn't make light of her sin though. He takes sin very seriously. He says her many sins were forgiven. He doesn't say they're no big deal, don't worry about it. He says her many sins were forgiven. He takes sin seriously. He takes forgiveness seriously. We have to do the same. We have to take sin and forgiveness seriously. But we'll never take them as seriously as we could until we understand the cost of that forgiveness. The price that God willingly paid, paying to offer our forgiveness. Jesus crucified on the cross to pay the debt we could never pay. You have to own that. You have to come to terms with that. But I want to ask you, who do you relate to in the story? I mentioned that about parables. Who do you relate to in this story? Do you relate to the Pharisee? If you really search your heart, do you see yourself as a Pharisee who just remembers the things that people did, judges them accordingly? Remember the time when you did this? Remember the time when you did that? We delight in reminding them whatever it is they did if you're the Pharisee. Do you know why God doesn't tell us what her sin actually was? Because frankly, it's none of our business, is it? It's none of our business. God doesn't rub our noses in our past failures. Then why should we? But that's what Pharisees did. When you come to the Lord in an open confession, when you just bare your soul before God and you reckon all of those things with him, he doesn't bring them up again. He actually removes them as far as east is from the west. He doesn't write them down for other people to look at. They're gone. They're forgotten. So if you're still feeling some kind of guilt or condemnation for something you did in your past that you've already told the Lord about, you've already confessed, then the guilt and the condemnation you're feeling is not coming from God. It's coming from somewhere else. Or do you see yourself as the woman who knows she's sinful and she needs forgiveness and a second chance? Can you see yourself as Jesus who is not afraid to be touched by the brokenness of other people and who is willing to offer them grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness? How does the story make you feel? The way this woman is responded to by Jesus? When you see this kind of acceptance and forgiveness, the transformation that happens, how do you feel? What it, how does it move you? The Bible says the woman left forgiven and in peace. <clears throat> Excuse me. She's transformed. We don't know anything else about this Pharisee. We never hear from him again. Only the one who came to Jesus and worshipped him and lay her life bare before him was changed by this encounter. So we can be like the woman and we can point other people to Jesus' feet. Or we can be like the Pharisee and point people to the door. Or we can be like Jesus and point them to the way of eternal life abundant life, eternal life, fulfilled life.
a second chance. Okay, let's get to the heart of all of this. The question that this story raises <clears throat> is, who is really the big debtor at the dinner table? Who's really the big debtor in this dinner story? For there, there, there is great sin present, but it's not with whom it would appear. Simon thinks he's the one who owes just a little. He has, he thinks, but a little sin, hardly anything worth mentioning. Not much grace needed here, not much to be forgiven. Simon thinks God's got it easy with him. A shoe-in. I'm a shoe-in, God. Simon doesn't need grace. He looks at others who he figures have had huge debts, and he see, huge debts, and he sees himself as being way above that and not anywhere near so foolish. He's filled with judgmentalism and comparison and superiority, but he is the one who has the huge debt that he cannot repay. It's the debt of sin borrowed by a heart that is so hard that it will not break. It's the debt of sin taken on by a life that will not change. It's the debt of sin that comes with a soul that is too stubborn and too proud to love. But there's more than one big debtor. There are also big debtors today. There are, in fact, big debtors in this room with me. Who's the big debtor? Friends, it's me. It's you. No matter how long you've gone to church or how respectable you are, your debt of sin, no matter how big or how small you might think it is, you simply cannot repay that debt on your own. And let me assure you that the debt you owe is plenty, en large, plenty enough large enough for you to be overwhelmed instead by the grace of God. When you see it for what it is and find forgiveness in him, trust in me, Jesus says, and your debt of sin that you could never repay, forget about it. Forget about it. He's turned his face to the sinner. He's turned his back on the accuser, and he's turned his face towards you. He's turned his back on self-righteous pride, and he's turned his face towards you in your distress. And in that moment of absolute forgiveness, you too will be moved to show faithful, extravagant love, to worship him with a grateful heart, to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Because the one who has been forgiven much loves much. Bow your heads for a moment. I want to let that just sink in with you for a moment. Perhaps in these moments you've identified with that woman and you feel like you're at an end and you don't know where the next bit of freedom is going to come from. You're looking for freedom, you're looking for forgiveness. You're looking for a second chance. I'm here to tell you, Jesus turns his back on all those voices that tell you you're not worthy, on all those voices that say, well, you've got so many bridges to walk back across, so many doors you've got to go through, you can never make it back to God. I'm here to tell you, God's been with you the entire time. You just need to turn around.
You just need to turn around. You just need to figuratively grab the, 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 the lot of your life, an alabaster jar of all of who you are, and just pour it out at his feet. Just pour it out at his feet. And you will get the same response that this woman got. Your sins, which are many, are forgiven. You're free. You're free. Now go and live in peace and watch how I transform you from the inside out. My Holy Spirit living in you. Lord Jesus, we are so, so thankful for your grace. So thankful for your mercy in that we have not received what we deserved. And we are so grateful for your forgiveness, your grace which gives us what we don't deserve, everlasting life, forgiveness of sin. We're so thankful, Father, that you accept us as we come. You don't ask us to get our act together before we come. You just ask us to come boldly, to come humbly, to come and to love you extravagantly. holding nothing back. And we have the assurance that you will not turn away. We thank you for the transformation that takes place that's happening in all of our lives through our encounters with you. Help us to never be like these who would point folks to the door, but rather to be like you, prompting and pointing people to the everlasting way, the way of eternal life, to you to receive that which you long to give, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love. Thank you that you are a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and quintillion chances. Lord, let us be a church that offers that, that takes people to you for that, it might be that some of us here have come and you're dealing just like this woman with this. It doesn't mean you did the same things she did, but you understand the kind of pain and honesty and the need for forgiveness that she felt. Maybe you came to this place today feeling like you don't belong here, but you're desperate for God. I want to invite you to pray in the quietness of your own heart. If you want to open your life to the Lord and give your life to Jesus and get a second chance, pray this with your own heart. Just say, Lord Jesus, I feel just like that woman. I may not have done what she did, and I certainly know, however, how she feels. I'm coming to you today with that same kind of honesty and openness and desperation. Lord, I need forgiveness. I need a second chance. Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you accept my offering of all that I am before you? My heart laid bare in this moment. My heart open to you. Come in and take over. Make me clean. Wash me as white as snow. Make me pure. Give me a new start in life, I pray. And for others here, it may be that we know that this has been our experience, but we've lost something over the years. Perhaps it's boldness. Perhaps it's humility. 
Maybe it's the honesty of confession, regular confession before you, or yes, even the extravagance of giving everything to you yet again. Help us all to get on track, Lord. Help us to, to always and in all things come to you first and then to choose and stay on the pathway that will lead to a life that pleases you, to the kind of life you've always wanted us to live and designed us for in the first place. For this, for this, our heart and our prayer before you, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of his people agreed and said, Amen. Amen.